Welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, psychotherapist and improviser in Naples, Florida. Today we're speaking with improv legend Jeff Machalski. Jeff and his wife, Jane Morris, were the founders of the Second City Etc. Theater. As a producer, director, and performer, he has worked with Chris Farley, Amy Sedaris, Mike Myers, Stephen Colbert, Ryan Stiles, and many more. Jeff studied with Paul Sills in his historic story theater. While traveling the country with Second City's National Touring Company, he continued training with Second City founder Paul Sills and artistic directors Del Close, Fred Koss, and Bernie Stallins. Currently, Jeff and Mrs. Morris work at the Fanatic Salon in Culver City, where he teaches improv to people from all walks of life. Jump right in as Jeff starts talking immediately about improv. Creating language. It's about creating communication. Eventually, what, your first, well, I don't know how, how I should label it to get into this, but the first thing that you're doing is letting the other player know that they're exactly right being where they are in that moment. So it's like you would do at the beginning of a session, you might uh, uh, do some NLP and, uh, and uh, mirror the person that you're talking to, to uh, kind of mirror back to them what you're seeing. And uh, the beginning of an improv is similar to that, is that you're letting the other player know what you see and that it's perfect, what you see. So if they, if their demeanor is uh, a little bit introspective, you say, you look introspective. And that just lets them know, I see, this is what I see, and it's okay. And then uh, it allows that person to place from where they begin at. And the second part of it is to find meaning in what they say. So I call that uh, breaking open the abstract. So Dell called it finding. Thank you. Uh, Dell called it uh, finding the focus. Uh, so, and he would describe it as treat what the other player says to you as if you were paranoid. And he says, I don't mean that you're, you know, mentally unstable, but it's way deeper than what they uh, may have meant. And for me, that's just breaking open what they say. So you take a word like chair in English. When you start breaking open what chair means, it's a colloquial, it's a colloquial thing. It's a uh, head of a department at a university. As a, it's a place of execution. Uh, and it's a place to rest. So by... By breaking open the meaning, by deconstructing at the very beginning of the scene, you're giving yourself a wide range of uh, possibilities for who, what, and where, and also a possible thematic uh, emergence, like a place to rest. So from that word chair, if we constructed a scene where we're at a place of execution, and our relationship is um, I'm a, a guard that's executing my, a guy that used to be my professor, 
and our internal relationship has always been that we provide a place to rest for each other. You have a full scene, and it's not it's not the circumstantial, it's not a transaction, it's a deep scene already. So uh, it's for me, it's about engagement, but that. But that thing about creating language, that's where it starts, because you repeat language in all its various meanings. Like you take the word, uh, you know, the thing that says serve and protect on a police car, right? Well, that word can mean uh, police brutality. It could mean uh, Rodney King. It could mean the literal definition of serve and protect it can mean all those things and you and uh you can use the phrase over and over or a gesture attached to the phrase over and over and and the meaning starts varying within the piece so in a long form so i don't know if that's too too broad but uh that's what i mean by creating language that you create language uh every time you play when you say that, I immediately think of Ios Bolin and gibberish because of the population yes. they were working with at Hull House, they didn't speak English. And Neva That's right. Boyd, and of course, Neva Boyd. And yeah. So, uh, and I love gibberish games myself. Yeah. Um, but there's more to it than that. Each of Viola's games develop a particular skill. So the games in themselves aren't like the end thing. They're they're a, a process to develop a skill to help you be able to improvise, which is being able to engage, play, and connect with another player, with another person. And her stuff runs a little bit deeper because of uh, her Martin Buber uh, connection, where his book, I and Thou, I being the sanctity of the individual and thou being uh, the divine and the other. So uh, there's, you know, she's got a, a whole philosophical, uh, spiritual connection to her work as well. So um, when I spoke with Carol Sills, she said mm -hmm. one of the things that interested her about Paul is he gave her a ride home and she saw a Martin Buber book in his car. Right. And um, yeah. I know you knew Paul Sills and worked with Paul Sills. Yeah. And I want to maybe start a little bit. You're an actor, a film producer. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there's one film I definitely want to talk to you about, and let's maybe just go there now. And that is um, the, um, oh my gosh. What's it about? It's about improvisation, and you're making it, but it hasn't been re released yet. And oh, that's called, that's called False profit and it's not right it's not that's a subtext is the uh, the part of it being about improvisation uh it's about the economic collapse in uh, uh what was 2008 but i had 30 improvisers in the film including david shepherd and i had a subtext where in order to get improvisers to talk about the economy i I really had them talk about improvisation. For instance, I had uh, Jody Lennon, and I had a great location. It was like on Times Square, 
uh, in a financial firm office there. And I, uh, she said, I don't know anything about the economy. And I said, okay, the Annoyance Theater is a, uh, a uh, what do they call it? A speculative financial firm. I know what the real word is, but I can't, uh, uh, a venture capital firm. And their major competition is uh, Morgan Stanley, which we'll call Second City. So now tell us the history of the annoyance <laughs> based on that premise. And, and she did. I gave her some words to use. And I did the same thing with Dave Pesquazy, where he talked uh, really about Dell and Viola. But I, I gave them in two economic, uh, economists to talk about. And, uh, but substitute Dell, you know, what he knows about Dell and what he knows about Viola. Uh, in there. So that's that one. Yeah. So that's my secret movie. So it's really about the Wall Street collapse, but I, you know, I also wanted to um, deal with these people's expertise, which is uh, improvisation and to use what they know about improvisation to speak about uh, something abstract like the economy. So uh, that's that one it's kind of it's kind of deep I, I'm still on my computer and I also have uh, I did I did write another thing up called why we play but I haven't shot very much of it yet and that's more about ensemble play uh -huh. and why people do what they do for instance there's jazz bands that meet in Chicago on Monday nights they're professional players but and they've come in to play for free at a place called the Serbian Village and you got to go, why do you do this? Why would you come into play? And it's the same thing with improvisers now that are, you know, world famous. They have film careers and stuff, but they still play mostly for free out, uh, out at the various venues in the world. And it's the why we play part that is interests me about jazz and improvisation. And Jazz uh, is part of our roots. So uh, that there's that excitement, that connection, that kind of push to rise up and be better because of what you're getting from the other players or what you're hearing from the other players. So uh, you're supporting that. So when someone takes a chance, someone does a great solo, everybody has to up their game in the piece. Top of and, your intelligence. What's that? The top of, top your, of your intelligence. Yeah, and that that was like assume that everybody you're in the audience is at least as smart as you are. That's what that breaks down to. So, um, you you were an actor. Were you into jazz first, or acting, or theater, or you grew up in Chicago? Grew up in Chicago on the northwest side. Was, uh, my dad was a police officer. I lived in a blue-collar neighborhood, and that means in the in the fifties and sixties, that meant that there was a lot of street gang activity and a lot of turmoil, and uh, you know, Vietnam War enters into that, and uh, all the kind of uh, 
deconstruction of what the, what what authority meant and what uh, whether to trust it or not. So there's a lot of disruption in that time period, and that also aided me in uh, impro improvising because I walked into the into the door with a uh, kind of disruptive searching for meaning uh, um, feeling. And I felt right at home right away. I just was the first class with Joe Forsberg. I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I do. And uh, I started performing right away. Within four weeks, I was out doing uh, coffee shops and the like. Because uh, I just had to. And uh, yeah. So at the time, at the time, there were only really six spots available at Second City on the main stage. And then there was a touring company that was in and out. It was happening and it wasn't happening. And uh, Joe started it and then Joyce took it over and made it into a, a commercial venture. But uh, there wasn't, uh, you had, we had to, that group of improvisers, probably about you know, 40 or so had to go find their own venues and create their own venues. Uh -huh. um, you know, you walk into a bar and you ask them if you can build a stage there and uh, you either take the door or in our case, I had a group that was a little bit smarter. We took a piece of the bar instead of the door <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we just started uh, playing and touring and I probably played and toured around the country for about six years before I got hired at Second City. Although I had a false hiring right at the beginning where uh, they called me and this other guy in Jim Fay to replace a touring company that got fired in Cleveland, but then they rehired a bunch of veterans. And so we were hired on Friday and let go on Monday. Is, is, that, about, is that when you got the pink slip? No, no, I got the pink slip out in Santa Monica oh. in 1989, 1990. <laughs> First time I ever got a pink slip. That was what was so funny about it. I'd been fired before I had gotten a pink slip. So going back to the early days again, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and so, so when you finally got to Second City, mm -hmm. how long after you were there? I was an outsider already in the sense that uh, I had successful uh, comedy groups outside of Second City. We got great reviews and stuff. And I think I was perceived coming in as a interloper, as a, uh, you know, somebody that hadn't put the time in at the post office, so to speak, uh, and as competition to people that had been there for a while. And I, I, you know, at the time, I was just too old to deal with that. I'd already been out to Hollywood. I'd been in the Groundlings uh, for a little bit, and I'd done some television. And um, I just didn't have the patience to be political. Right. So I just decided I'm just going to do what I want, and if I get fired, I get fired. And uh, I just started creating... Uh, connections with other uh, improvisers and uh, people within there and we 
started doing our own material and uh, even on the road when we we're supposed to be doing best of material we interspersed it with things we were creating and then an opportunity arose because Paul Sills had developed a space in the back of Second City that eventually became the ETC and so Paul was there and then the practical theater was there and then when they left they wanted us to do a best of show in the back and we of course just did original material and then eventually Joyce uh, set it up so that we could sort of secretly uh, open up a theater so we'd have to wait for Bernie to leave town and uh, because he didn't want us to do that he, uh, you know, he wanted the main stage to be the only material creating company and because uh, you know that that was the thing and uh, so we did our first show we had a Larry Cart from the Tribune came in and gave us the most fantastic review Bernie came back and said fire Jeff and Jane James <laughs> my wife and Joyce showed him the bar receipts and the ticket receipts and uh, convinced him not to uh, and uh, our second show also we had to wait till Bernie was out of town we were ordered not to order that uh, open that and we did and uh, the review headline you could go through the entire history of the second city and not find a company this good that was the opening line of the the uh, review and again Bernie was coming back from Egypt saw the review in the newspaper and again called Joyce and said fire Jeff and Jane and uh, she didn't and uh, we kept going there and uh, so it was uh, I loved my time at Second City some of it was very disheartening and uh, at the beginning until I just decided I'm just gonna do what I do and uh, at one point, Joyce made me a director, so I was both directing and in the company, which is unusual. And I had to form a strategy for that, which was get everybody else's stuff up first, and then what was needed after that is what I would do. So uh, if we needed character pieces, I'd do character pieces. If I needed, needed straight man, I'd do straight man. And that helped uh, fill out my uh, uh, repertoire, so to speak. And so, uh, did you have a great yeah. musician accompanying you then? Pardon me? Did you have a great musician accompanying you then? Uh, we had two very good musicians. One was uh, Laura Hall, who plays yeah. for Who's Line right now. Yeah. And uh, the other was Dan Galogli, uh, who plays around Chicago. And we had Ruby Streak at the beginning. So Ruby played with us. So those were the three people we had. Um, we were constantly being having people taken away from us. And in fact, Bernie took my entire cast after the first show, except for me, and put them on the main stage. So and gave me a bunch of people he fired. So I had to kind of reinvent the ETC again with the people he discarded. And I kept doing that. I just, I, and that was from Paul because Paul had said, they said, how do you build a company? And he said, whoever walks in the door. So I just 
took that as, well, that's the way we do this. So, um, you know, for me, it's always about the ensemble, making the, the ensemble, uh, creating the environment that the ensemble could work together. It was never about competition to me. It couldn't be. So, um, you know, it's just taking those things I learned from improv or I'd ask Dell about what he'd do in absence of it. Because we were assigned a director who was ill, so he couldn't really be there when we first opened the ETC. So I asked Dell how they did, because I knew that Paul would occasionally walk off out of the theater before the show was up. And he talked about how the little exercises they did to self-direct. And I employed some of those things into the uh, ETC as well. Okay, so, can, you, can you share one of those exercises? Well, one Dell told me about was he just put uh, boxes around the stage, taped out boxes or chalked out boxes with emotions in them in different areas of the stage. And then, uh, so while you're improvising a scene, you would look down to what box you're in, and that's the emotion that you would uh, convey. And it would start, you know, the, the nuance of that, the kind of uh, uh, haphazard part of that starts uh, forming a scene. It's a, most of, a, of putting up a Second City show is what William Gibson calls pattern recognition. Right. And that's the same thing in a improvisation as well, is that you see what the patterns are that are emerging, and you you uh, you repeat them in a different way. And that works uh, as far as improvising relationships. It works as far as improvising theme. It's, uh, it's, it's the key. Uh, it's a, a key inspirational uh, thing to create material. Can you explain pattern recognition a little bit more for some listeners who may not exactly know what it is? Well, uh, from William Gibson's point of view, it's being able to uh, predict marketing things based on observing patterns of people's behavior, right? So a lot of his science fiction ends up in corporate uh, structures and branding and marketing and, uh, you know, the idea of people finding out what fashion is by watching what kids are wearing at in schoolyards. So, you know, you, you go out there and then you start uh, creating variations of that and marketing that. But in a scene, it's what was said? What was said again? What were the two things that were said, three things that were said at the beginning of the scene? That's a pattern, right? So if it starts with an accusation, then the accusation is part of a pattern. It's not something that's gonna be discarded. It's gonna appear again, and it's gonna appear again, and it's gonna appear again. And if, if, you, can, if you can kind of recognize two or three patterns that are just happening in your regular behavior with another player, uh, you already have a scene. You already have a, a, something to explore. And recognizing that pattern just means that you're conscious of what's being said to you. 
You're conscious of what your behavior, conscious of the other person's behavior. You're not trying to change their behavior. And I think you're doing the wrong thing or you always do this or whatever thing that ends up being a conflict in a scene. You make the, that disruption the focus of the scene. You make those patterns that emerge the focus of the scene. Um, you don't try to change what's happening. You don't try to tell another player they're doing the wrong thing. You recognize and go, well, that's what this is. These patterns are our relationship. Yeah. I think one of the things I see sometimes is people going for the joke. Uh, I see in improv shows or festivals and going for the joke rather than just being real and being here and being present and being aware. Yeah, well, uh, comedy is a byproduct right. of... Uh, of uh, that type of deconstruction. If you notice, a lot of times the big laughs come off the variation, the mistake. Yes. Yeah. But as far as being funny, my feeling on that is either you're funny or you're not. And uh, it's not, it's the byproduct, it will emerge in improvisation. You'll get laughs even if you're not naturally funny but what are funny people funny people are people that deconstruct reality that look at and go why are we doing this why are we behaving this way uh, irony is how your behavior differs from your ideals so if if the if the accepted ideal what's the ideal of let's say love right so the ideal is that our marriage so people talk about what an ideal marriage is and that's the cultural acceptance of what it is but in true behavior the way people behave when they're in a marriage is not that and that's the irony that's the uh that's the joke of the scene is recognizing how your behavior differs from your ideals whether it's cultural or individual the scene the second city in particular was bernie would say that it was about self-indictment there was a theater without heroes that if you uh you had to reveal your own flaws your own uh behavior things in in uh, connection to a, a personal or cultural ideal to really be dealing with something that's going to resonate with the audience because they recognize that that's what they recognize. And they laugh at that. So uh, there's a, that's a byproduct of the going for the joke is a byproduct of uh, improvisation moving into nightclubs, which is fine. That's where I started. And uh, the people and in institutions trying to have a benchmark as to what's good improvisation. People trying to survive off the fact that uh, they're funnier than the another person. And it's not always the case. They might be meaner than the other person. They might be more ruthless than the other person, but they're not, uh, you have to be, you have to be nurturing that other person on stage to make the scene work. You have to take what they have, no matter what you might perceive the limitations to be, and make that 
uh, endow that with um, worth, with his sense of uh, power. Like uh, sometimes, I don't do levels in classes, and part of the, part of that is that if you're a real good player, it's good for you to play with someone that you that might be new, because you're going to go back to your fundamentals and uh, learn to uh, help that player through a theme. Um, and then the other thing is that the style that I do doesn't. Uh, like when I teach in New York, I might, and I don't tell anybody who anybody is, but I might have Broadway actors in the, in the class, along with brand new people, along with a couple film people, and uh, uh, you can't tell who's who. It all looks good. Because uh, the, uh, I've deconstructed what I teach to be a more uh, physical and immediate uh, Acceptance. It's not. It's not um, so heady. So I, I use a kinesthetic approach. Yes. Meaning that you're uh, you're you're moving off the stimulus that's provided in the space. So it could be the other players. It could be what's happening in the audience. It could be a loud air conditioner. It doesn't matter. Any stimulus, whether it's uh, sound or movement. Or uh, whatever is, you have to register it in your body somewhere. It's not so much mirroring; it's playing kinesthetically. It's like when you you're at a bus stop and you're waiting for a bus. You uh, you might walk out to the curb and look to see if the bus is coming, and walk back. And then if anybody else that's at the bus stop steps off the curb to look, you're pulled. Your body's kind of pulled, even though you just looked. It's pulled to do that, and that's, that's kinesthetic motion. So with how people walk in, in Times Square, they have to walk kinesthetically. They can't, they can't, uh, they have to do that dance. Or if you're in an elevator, you press the button, and somebody else gets in the elevator, and when they reach to press the button, your, your arm is being drawn out, you know, or your body's pulled in. I don't know what for, but it's that movement that's in the confined space that your body is registering. So instead of making that uh, something that we suppress, which we do, like if we hear a fire uh, fire truck, we tend to really ignore it on the street in the city, especially. We shut that down, and we don't respond physically to it. But if we were to we'd be alarmed. There we hear alarm, we'd be alarmed. And we shut that down. And uh, so that's, I've, I've worked on taking any stimulus and putting it into the space immediately without thought. It's uh, kind of a uh, Parkinson's disease and MS. But it doesn't matter. In the, I guess I've, I've had that too because then the movement can be anywhere, right? It can be uh, so for the people playing with the people with Parkinson's, they can, they can limit the movement to an eyelid 
or to uh, any part of it, and it still it still starts, it still will work that way. So more about the connection that shows that people are together than it is about um, and communicating that they're together than it is about whatever the movements are. Um, I so. want to go back. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I do want to kind of go back to the compass because weren't you involved with the compass with the early? No, no, no. no. Mm -mm. Not that old. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I know those people. I knew them. I know Severin, and I knew Severin, and I knew uh, pretty much everybody. Roger Bowen. He, Roger Bowen gave me all the original compass scenarios. I have them in my house. Uh, one's Elaine May wrote, one's he wrote. So I have them, and some of them on the original paper that had, like, oh. beer slogans, you know, like old-style logos on the top and such. Huh. so that's my connection to the compass and when i opened the up i opened the theater in los angeles called uh, upfront comedy and i called severin and i said if i open the theater will you play there and he said yes and he brought in people that were original members from the original company at second city including mina kolb and uh Fred, of course, played for us, and uh, Roger Bowen was part of that. And Roger Bowen uh, just walked up to me one day, gave me all these papers, and said, here, you have to keep this. And he gave me the original Compass scenario. Wow. So I'm, like, uh, I'm like Michael Golding on the, uh, on the uh, you know, just a, on the West Coast. <laughs> well, Michael Colding's terrific, and I actually did get to speak to David a few years ago, and what mm -hmm. an incredible person he was, and, and you've worked with David Shepard too, haven't you? Yeah, he stayed at my house and uh, ran around town disrupting the improv community, <laughs> uh, which he does, and, um, and he's in that movie that I did, he's in yeah. False Prophet. Which I'll see eventually. So, what's that? Which I'll see eventually, Jeff. Uh, I can, you know, I started cutting a couple scenes together. I sent Michael something. So uh, as I cut stuff together, I can send you bits and pieces. It's not my movie. I directed it, right. but I don't. Uh, I was hired to direct it. So they never did anything with it. So eventually I got all the footage. So now that's how it became my responsibility. So. Um, I, I, know, I know you've taught a lot of very famous people, but the quote that I liked was the one that Colbert said about love the bomb. Yes. Well, that's, that's distinctly me. <laughs> <laughs> and that was from experience because I started performing right away, like I said, after about four weeks. And of course I was bombing. And, and the thing was, that was what taught me. Uh, that and the other thing more than that was the audience is never closer to a performer than when they're bombing right right they they feel that tension they feel that fear if you run away from it they feel sorry from you for you like if you suddenly go you know just run off stage or back away from it they feel sorry for you if you uh, deny that you're bombing it makes them frustrated. If you land in it, totally land in it, and keep going with what's making you bomb, and double down on it, 
eventually your performance will write itself. It will, like a plane heading to the ground, everybody's going down with you and suddenly you pull out of it and then you have the entire audience. You have everybody in the audience is with you at that moment because they, they took that trip with you. So uh, I create opportunities not to bomb, but to be so vulnerable on stage that I could. And I think that's what Colbert discovered as well, is that uh, if, you're, if you're that open, that we, you take all your tricks out and you're just that raw, that you're, you're, you're eventually going to engage and connect with the audience. And uh, he says he did that at the Bush Press Club thing. Uh -huh. That Paul, Paul Danello's his partner, and Paul, uh, they'd written two different sets. And the set he was doing was bombing, and he just, he said he remembered what I said and just kept going that way. And that really became a landmark event for him. That, uh, uh, press club performance so uh, and I, I encourage those guys right from the beginning because I was their touring company director to just do what they do and not worry about trying to fit in not worrying about uh, the rest of second city so to speak just do what you do so in his company was Farley him Amy Sedaris Paul Danello um, I mean, it, it was just a unique company. I remember somebody sitting out watching one of their first shows, and uh, I think it was Chris Barnes, and he said, who hired the dirt balls? That's what he said. And I raised my hand. <laughs> and uh, they were, they, I just encouraged them to just do what they do. One of their first sets, I had a rule that you, somebody couldn't, we had, at Second City, you could guess in a set, you know, an improv set after the show. And people would sometimes line up and, and uh, uh, ask to participate in the improv set. And it was their first show, and I said, uh, nobody, nobody can do your set tonight. And some Second City guy kind of forced himself way into their set. And I'm watching it, and I see him on stage, and I run backstage, and I grab Farley and Paul Danello, and I said, what's that guy doing on stage? And, and they said, well, he said, blah, blah, blah. And I said, go get him off the stage. And they went, in, <laughs> they went on stage, and in the middle of improvisation, they created a scenario where they tackled him, picked him up, and took him out off the stage and threw him out the door. <laughs> And uh, those guys still remember that as a high point of their second city thing. All those Farley did and Danello did and uh, Colbert. It's like a high point of just led, saying, this is your stage. This is your company. And uh, I, think, uh, I think that was a profound thing for them. And, and uh for me as well, but that was what I'd learned. I had that, those are the, thing, the things I learned was the, the thing about the bomb and the thing about 
this is your time. This, you, you know, you're not trying to be somebody else. You're not trying to uh, uh, create somebody else. You're going to let these scenes emerge out of uh, you, out of the, your perception, perceptions, of your connection to the world. So. I, I have a feeling you have a different temperament when teaching than Dell did. Uh, well, it's. I don't even know know how to describe Dell's temperament. Uh, he would just walk out sometimes, wouldn't he? He would kind of quit come back. And... Yeah, yeah. He was like uh, he was definitely a substance abuser. Oh yeah, and a, a friend of mine studied with Dell, and actually uh -huh. sometimes drive home and do a little read with him. And he mm -hmm. he, um, he said sometimes Dell would be looking like he was totally asleep. And all yeah. of a sudden he would wake up and it looked like he was waking up and call somebody on what they had just did. And uh, so. Yeah. Well, but that's sort of like nodding off. Yeah, yeah. Because he, he also did heroin as well. The thing with the Dell class is that he might talk for the entire class and you never get up on stage or you're up all the time. His classes were big. Some, the people that ran the classes would have to go find him sometimes. If he took a break, you didn't know if he would come back or not. But he would always say something brilliant during the course of it because he also had a connection to science fiction literature and other things that uh, he would bring in. And that was, it's a great sensibility to bring the act of being an artist into improvisation. And that's what I, I teach. I, I feel I teach people to be an artist. And that, that, and improvisation, the, improv the improviser is the art. So it's, uh, in creativity theory, they talk about how an artist has to start with, or do start with a tolerance of ambiguity. Yes. The yeah. idea that they don't know. And you even hear people like Itzhak Perlman talk about that, about getting himself in that state where he just doesn't know at the beginning of the performance. And the next thing is, uh, the next thing has to do with pattern recognition. It's, you look for the, uh, what do they call it? Uh, divergent thinking, right? And that's the observation of patterns. So uh, you see the patterns that emerge and then you find, like if you're playing a guitar, you play a couple chords and one day those two chords resonate with you. And so you find divergent pathways between those two chords. And that starts filling things out. And then the third part is uh, convergent thinking. And that's when you go, oh, this is a love song. Or this seems about this. Or this is that. But you have to follow the pattern recognition in order to get there. You, you, uh, uh, you can't determine ahead of time unless you're creating a piece of art that you've been hired to create. So, but from improvisation, from music, from somebody doing their own personal work, uh, they have to let it emerge. And Viola used the word emerge all the time, but letting things emerge. Don't make them happen, let them emerge. And uh, so I, my class is constructed on those ideas of, uh, uh, First, the kinesthetic movement, so you already have engagement without content. 
and then you're, the second part of it is being able to read the other person. And the third part of it is breaking open an abstract so that you can start seeing what the patterns are and, uh, and dwell in the patterns until you actually realize it might not be to the end of the piece that you understand what the piece is about. And that's, that's, that feels wonderful. That, uh, it feels than anything that you can preconceive. Yeah, the idea of tolerance of ambiguity, um, you turned me on to Dr. Duffy's book. That, uh, yeah. Um, that was great. Thank you so much. I, I was kind of curious, how do you start your classes? Do they vary on who you're teaching, or do you have a kind of general way you start? Because you, you don't teach them. Well, I, I, I mostly start with, I'm, I must, I, sometimes I use a viola walk, but mostly I start with kinesthetic movement. So I use uh, uh, some Ann Bogart techniques. Uh, I might put some music on and then uh, just have people move kinesthetically. I'll coach them through it. There's things that you do that, uh, land, what I call lands, which are the extension of the movement. And the idea, and this is also fits into Paul Sills' uh, thing of no motion, is he had a thing when, when people start getting sloppy physically, he would call out no motion. And that just means that you start moving as if you're in a frame-to-frame -frame movie. So it's really every movement is beat, 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 beat. And what that, uh, what that does is it, it gives a conclusion to something. It starts focusing, sharpening your movement. So I call that a land and when I do kinesthetic work. And... Um, and Anne, uh, Anne Bogart had a connection to Beatrice Bolin, right? Is that correct? Right, yes, yeah. Well, she, she was, her thing for viewpoints was inspired by a dance company she saw in New York uh -huh. that had already created some parts of the viewpoints. And uh, viewpoints meaning just certain things that are in every production. You know, that's basically what stage, stage just, labeling different parts of stagecraft really and it was a company that was originated by beatrice her last name wasn't spolin i forget what her last name was um, but it was please, a viola's sister please. Uh, what's that please l-e-e-s i think please uh -huh. okay so uh so that when i discovered that that emerged from the same thing i went well this is us this is us too and I just started using, I use various improvisational language. I use jazz language. I use some Meisner uh, I was ask Did you study with Meisner at all yourself? Or? No, I did a production where they used Meisner in the production. And in the rehearsal process, there's this one thing that came up as an exercise that I kind of uh, modified. And it was... Uh, sitting across from someone, getting a scenario, and then reading, doing nothing but reading the other person's face beat to beat, back and forth. So if it's like, uh, I perceive you're angry, and the other person says, I perceive you're challenging, and just reading back and forth. And then at the end of it, what I do is I say to the audience, okay, you guys wrote this scene, this scene, this beat the beat thing that we saw, you actually wrote a scene out that deals with the scenario. What was it? And they'll, they'll give you a complete scene. Everybody in the audience 
will give you a complete scene. It might be different, but they all give you a complete scene. And that, that there's two, three lessons in that. The one is the, uh, about the engagement, the beat to beat engagement of how you play with another player. The second is that the audience contributes to the content by their perception. So you don't have to to spell everything out for them. You have just have to engage in that. They'll start filling things out. They'll start filling the details about the location and about the people. They'll start adding story to backstory to these people. So you don't have to tell backstory. There's no backstory in improvisation. It's what's happening now. And when you start doing backstory, you might as well go and do that scene. Once you start going, doing that. So, um, so that that's I use Miser for that presence, that idea that you're just looking at the other player and you're telling them what you see right now, not dealing with the content at all. Yeah, I love Meisner. I studied some Meisner in the beginning of my mm -hmm. little acting career. Um, yeah, I, I did. I took Meisner with David Mamet too. Oh my God. Wow. And, yeah, but that was a hor that felt like a horrible class to me. Because <laughs> David would just sit out in the audience and go, no, 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 no. All right, whatever. Um, you, you know, I find a couple of things, a few, I find a few things inspiring about you, but one is a story, and I'd like to hear more about it, where, and I'm not sure where it was, it, if it was in a Mexican restaurant or something, but um, you had it, uh, the improvisers were doing a scene about um, uh, Mexicans and they were doing stereotypes of Mexicans, you know, and then well, the Puerto Rican fellow there. Right, well, this is ETC. That was the, well, that was the director and I, the second city ETC. And I was a director there and an actor in the same company. And there's a scene that these guys just loved doing that was just very insulting and very kind of um, just getting laughs off, getting the stereotypes. And I, didn't, I don't stop people from doing scenes. I try to deepen what's happening. And so I thought about it and I said, okay, these guys are having fun doing that, but let's make the content different. So I, there was a guy that cleaned the theater and I sat down with him and somebody else and we wrote out a scene about um, uh, how, how hard it is to uh, uh, integrate into the American culture, that the, the type of the obstacles that are thrown at people. So. I let people play the same overbroad kind of uh, Spanish soap opera thing, but I had uh, the people on stage speaking Spanish, doing a completely different scene, and the people that were dubbing it do the stereotypical stuff that they were doing already. And uh, I didn't tell the audience. And if you were Spanish speaking, you got the benefit of, of both scenes. And if not, you, you can laugh in, in your own prejudice, you know. So it was, uh, 
it was just a way for me to deal with uh, putting up a scene that emerged, but to uh, self-indict on it, to, in the, to use Bernie's thing of this is about self-indictment. So we're even indicting ourselves by doing the scene. But there's another scene here, too. Yeah, it's so. brilliant and so relevant. I mean, yeah. it's just a beautiful thing. And that was a long time ago. That's like more than 20 years ago. You know, that's 1984 or 85. I, I heard a quote that you said that second, early Second City was like the show SCTV. Well, what I, uh, well, I guess what I was trying to say is that the inmates were in charge of the asylum. Right, right. <laughs> right? And that was, that's key to both early Second City and to, uh, I mean, much as Paul might be an auteur director, he's not. Uh, much of people think about uh, Paul's, Paul was a, a facilitator to that ensemble as well. And like I said, Paul would leave sometimes before the show is completed in frustration. And the cast would have to uh, put up the remaining show or later on, if it was Bernie that walked out, then it would have to be Fred Cass, who was the musical director, putting, helping put the show together. So uh, I forgot the track. So there's something wonderful to letting the players play uh, and not try to uh, put your auteur director thing on top of it. Let them be who they are and then just guide them to just think deeper about whatever it is that they're doing, to break it open more. You go, okay, it's okay, but let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Um, so that, that was uh, sort of my contract with Second City and with the, uh, the legacy of those great people was to uh, just go deeper and not, not, not cheapen it, like the go for the laugh thing. Yeah, well, I, we love laughs. Let's get the laughs, but let's go, let's go deeper. Let's let's reveal our flaws. And that's the same thing with the Colbert bomb. It's all the same thing. Is that is is being revealing, going deeper, revealing, revealing, revealing. Comedy is about revealing. It's not about hiding. Drama. Becomes drama because nobody's talking. A lot of secrets, and because there's secrets, there's misunderstandings. Because of the misunderstandings, there's actions that are taken that are uh, irreversible. In comedy, the comic is always revealing their flaws. They're constantly revealing their flaws, and that's part of what the enjoyment is for the audience. Um. The word codify, when I first learned improv, I was given a set of rules. And uh, I'm a pretty concrete person at times because I kind of held on to them. <coughs> Sometimes losing opportunities to do something entirely different, if you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying. Because um, they were holding, they hold you back, I think. And the word codify, can you explain that a little bit? Well, when you start branding, 
and creating, uh, codifying improvisation that it's this, 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 this. You're limiting it. You're suddenly, you're, you're trying to own it. And by trying to own it, you actually limit. So it's like, Viola didn't write rules. She created games. Rules are shorthand for people that are new to improvisation to go, oh, uh, just yes and, right? Or, uh, or this or that. I mean, there's some great ones. Follow the followers. Terrific. And that does come from Paul and from Viola. But uh, it's not rules. It's a skill. It's a practice. It's not a set of rules. So uh, the, the rules might lead you to the practice, but uh, it's, a, it's a practice. It's like a, it's like a martial art in a sense. Is that there's certain things that, that you learn and you just, you just get, make them more sophisticated as you go along. When you walk into the beginning of a martial art class, you do all the techniques for the master before you walk in. Okay? So the techniques aren't that broad. They're just very simple techniques. And then it's, you become a, a black belt or a brown belt or whatever by making your practice more, you don't learn anything new. You just make your practice more sophisticated. And it's the same thing with improvisation. Once you know what the basic things are, you're not learning. That's why I don't like programs, because it gives you the false uh, feeling that there's more to come. There is no more to come. There's only just deepening the practice. And that's, that's why I don't do levels in my class, because it's the practice and then deepening the practice. There's... Um a quote from somebody I know you admire quite a bit, and the quote is, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth, we were all crew. And that's Marshall McLuhan. Uh -huh. And I well, love that. I, I think it speaks a lot about improv. Yeah, I'm, I'm deep into McLuhan and James Joyce. Wow. So uh, I do, uh, I, I finally read Finnegan's Wake, but I, I do belong to a Finnegan's Wake reading group. It's called the Marshall McLuhan Finnegan's Wake Reading Club. <laughs> and McLuhan, I use his tetrads to help people write stand-up uh -huh. and to understand what a long form is about, how, how long form emerges. So I'll, I'll send you the tetrad, but the, yeah. in the tetrad, he uses it to, to show what's going to happen with technology. So, but it really comes from Manipian satire, which is satire that's based on idea and not on person. So you're not satirizing a person, you're satirizing an idea. And so he took this tetrad from that and you break it down into what does, first, what does it enhance? It looks like a Mobius strip. What does uh, a technology enhance? What does it make obsolete? What does it uh, bring back from the past that once was obsolete? and take into ex extreme, what can it flip into? So you take something like an automobile and it starts with uh, uh, what does it enhance and it has the ability to uh, transport yourself. Uh, what does it make uh, obsolete besides horse and buggy? It makes other things obsolete too, because you're basically uh, removing, even though you're driving through the country, 
you're removing the country from the experience because you're inside a car. But the last thing with the car, the thing it flipped into, one of the things it flipped into was IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Nobody expected that technology to be used for that. Or the cell phone, maybe the cell phone fits into that category too. But it improvised, so you said whatever advantages to a cell phone, eventually somebody used that technology to blow up things. So you do that with a scene too. You can take a, an idea for a scene and what does the idea of marriage enhance? What does it make obsolete? What does it bring back that once was obsolete? Like maybe owning, owning people or uh, the idea of, of arranged marriages for power. And then the last thing, uh, you know, what, it, what does it flip into that nobody was expecting? Well, obviously, uh, dissolution, you know, just like 50% divorces and stuff. So you can kind of start gauging a track on how to do things uh, based on uh, McLuhan, Tetchat. They're all dealing with the same thing, engagement. Joyce is dealing with engagement and with uh, uh, deconstruction. Finnegan's Wake is all about deconstructing, not just English, but every language he puts into it, which is insane how, how many different languages he uses in Finnegan's Wake. So anyway, I got to go because I have to go teach class. Oh, well, listen, thank you so much. I just want to ask you one final question, and I really thank you for everything. Um, what gives you the most joy today? To me, I, I love performing, uh, but I also love watching people get it. Yeah. Uh, I love, I, you know, I love engagement. I, I, I practice my practice everywhere. If I'm out at the Starbucks or whatever it is, I'm reading somebody, I'm engaging with someone, I'm deconstructing what they say, and it makes for richer conversation, richer connection, more playful world. And so uh, the practice of, is what make, gives me joy. So uh, Thank you for engaging with me, Jeff. Really, thank okay. you so much. It's been a wonderful talk, and um, hope I see you sometime in real time. Okay. Well, thank you. I hope to see you, too. Have a great show tonight. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right.